This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Before we start Dreamland today, I'd like to say that we're going to do things a little differently. We're going to be talking to Von Brashler. It's going to be a fascinating conversation, and I hope an empowering one, because the theme of this week's show really is empowerment. And then, instead of continuing in the third half hour with Vaughn, we're going to be talking together. I'm going to be giving you a sensing exercise and doing it with you, and then we're going to do a little more work together in order to strengthen our second bodies, because times are very complex and difficult right now, and boy, we need a little inner peace, don't we, so badly, and ability to project that peace to each other and out into the world, and that's what we will do in the third half hour. I've been doing this a long time, since 1969, and it will be a good experience for everyone, I hope. Today we have Von Brashler back with us. Uh, Von was with us uh, last year talking about people moving into the past and the future, which was wonderfully fascinating. And now he is back with us. He's going to be talking about mysterious messages from the beyond. And I am going to introduce this wonderful adventure that we are about to have together with a, uh, a quote from Frank Joseph's uh, uh, introduction to the book, which I thought summed this all up just absolutely perfectly. We are here today where Rome, Babylon, Persia, Egypt, and many others so alarmingly like ourselves and similarly certain of their guaranteed longevity stood and fell before us at the close of the same predictable cycle of events. This new book is among the best of the last-ditch efforts by modern alternative thinkers to direct us away from that lethal historical pattern by seeking within ourselves for our lost heritage, still intact, but buried under generational levels of disbelief. And even if you don't share that disbelief in your mind, it is still there. It is still part of you because it is so deep within us all. So, Vaughn, welcome to Dreamland, and I'm very glad to see you again. Thank you, Whitley. It's good to be with you. Oh, good. I'm glad. Uh, let's start out. I think the best place to start is with the and many of many of our listeners probably know this story, but I, I think we'd all love to hear you tell it, which is the story of Carl Jung's discovery of synchronicity with the scarab beetle. Because oh, it's yeah. so important this it, 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 to break through this crust of disbelief that is stopping us from moving into higher realms. 
So tell us that story. Absolutely. Now, Carl Jung, now this, this, this comes from actually Frank Joseph's introduction preface that you're referring to. Uh, Carl Jung more or less coined the term synchronicity. I, I believe he was the first to actually use it. Um, and, and he clearly drew the different difference between um, uh, insignificant coincidences and what he called meaningful coincidences. And I, I know that readers of Frank Joseph would find his latest book extremely interesting to, uh, to discover uh, all the nuances of synchronicity and how it impacts our lives. It most certainly does. As, as Frank often says, that nature, that the cosmos puts us in certain situations repeatedly, a pattern of situations, not as, as insignificant coincidences, but meaningful coincidences meant to grab our attention. And as, as Frank would say, were he here, that this is how we learn. Uh, it is the way of, of, of karma, the way that nature aligns us with coincidences over and over again to, to, to understand what we're, we're failing to see with our physical eyes and failing to hear with our physical ears. So I've written a book about seeing with new eyes and hearing with new ears. The um, story I was referring to is the story of, I'll just tell it very briefly so my listeners know what we were talking about. Uh, Carl Jung had a patient who was very, very fixated on the physical world as being the only reality. And it was getting to the point where his ability to uh, to uh, treat her was literally coming to an end. And she was began in one of the sessions to talk about a scarab beetle and for various reasons having to do with her treatment. At that moment, something began tapping on the window of the treatment room and Jung looked over and there was this large beetle tapping, literally tapping on the window. He opened the window, got the beetle into his hand and said, here is your scarab beetle. It was a scarab beetle in Switzerland. And it changed this woman's life. But we don't all have that chance to be so shocked into a new and more true vision of reality. And what this book is about, what Vaughn's book is about, is going for it, basically, it, by telling stories that are that that open our minds and i wanted another shocker for me is the story of sybil leak and ian fleming oh yeah what a story i mean sybil leak a witch and ian fleming the professional spy and goodness knows what else he was james bond author they they not only knew each other they worked together to tell us about that yeah. So, I mean, they maintained, this is the story told by Sybil Leek, not, not the spy master, but 
she tells the story how they collaborated with yet a third person, which I, I don't think was named. Um, and the three of them would collaborate on on joint medita- meditations where they would project their thought forms out there to have an impact to end the war. In other words, they projected a, a, a the, the, the shared um, thought form that peace should come in our time and that the, the war should end. Uh, it's not the first time that a group of people have done this. Um, well, I, it might have been the first time. I don't know. The Maharishi Yoga, you practice the Maharishi effect in much the same way. But anyway, uh, yes, the most unlikely uh, coupling of these two people working together, they thought had helped bring the end of the war. Let's now talk about uh, Feng. And by the way, they were that, he's talking about World War II. Uh, yeah, and... Uh, whether or not it helped is a, is a question. I know I'm very careful about trying to do things like organize meditation groups to change the weather and so forth, because yeah. I'm, I'm not absolutely sure that's what it's about. It might be. I mean, it, we, we might be able to do those things, but I think it's, it's much more important to try to build a, 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 a bridge of, sensation and awareness between the physical and non-physical parts of ourselves. But let's, um, let's move along here because there's so much in the book. It's what this book is folks is a, it's a series basically of stories and, and, uh, analyses of the, the meaning of these stories and there are meditations and things in it. We'll get to that. Uh, phone calls, yeah. Some fascinating material in the book about phone calls from the dead or from someone. It's phone calls that, well, t- like the Dean Kuntz phone call, for example. Oh, the Dean Kuntz. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. So, so, so Dean Kuntz, when he was a young writer, he received a phone call from a woman who sounded everything like his, his mother, except his mother had, had died. I think it was like three years earlier. So what this voice on the phone was uh, urging Dean to do was to be careful that his father was going to attack him, was going to threaten his life. And of course, that just seemed unrealistic at the time. But in time, it did happen. Dean Kuntz's father, for some strange reason, did, did, did attack him. And as a result, Dean Koontz wrote an essay about that. And then later on, it, it, it appeared in a, in a book, which he called uh, Mr. Murder, a 1993 novel by Dean Koontz. And it was analyzed in Psychology Today by a forensic psychologist, Dr. Catherine Ramslanda. It is um, interesting that... Um, this is not unique in a way. Many people have received calls from the dead or, or voices who warned them from, let's say, the spirit realm. Yeah, uh, I believe, incidentally, folks, I'm pretty sure that Catherine Ramsland was on Dreamland huh. years and years ago. Uh, I, I, I don't remember the exact show date, but I'll... I'll try to find it. Uh, in any case, uh, a lot of people 
have been on the show over the years, that's for certain. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the next thing that, beyond phone calls from the dead, there's also radio. You, you touch on radio messages. And, 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 and I might add, by the way, that Dean Kuntz's father was mentally ill and did come after Dean with a knife when he went to visit him, uh, at, at, just after that warning had been delivered, apparently, by Dean's mama. Uh, so uh, that's the sort of thing that, that we live without noticing. And in a sense, this show is going to be about noticing, uh, because we have to notice this stuff. It's it's very very important that we do so. Uh, now, because if we don't, we stay small. We're like locked in a little room, often one corner of reality, and we stay in that little room. We don't go out, and you know somebody maybe every once in a while kind of pulls the door open a little bit and there's a bright light coming in and we say, oh no, I don't want to see that. But uh, most of us do. But those of us who are trying to get out into that light, we need to help each other and we need to encourage each other and we need to remind each other that we're brainwashed. Even those of us who know that light is there. Now, So let's talk now, speaking of Getting in touch, we have to talk about Omar the Tree. Omar the Tree. I love Omar the Tree. So I lived on Mount Hood in Oregon. Thank you for thinking of Omar. He was a neighbor of mine. In fact, I thought his name was Omar because he wrote these children's books that he was telling me about. And they were all written by Omar. And he claimed that he wrote them. So I figured he was Omar. So he said, no, I'm not exactly Omar. Omar tells me the stories and I write them down. <laughs> and I said, really? This, who is this Omar? He said, oh, I'll, I'll show you Omar. And we're walking through the woods. And, and, and he said, well, Omar is a, is a tree. And I said, really? <laughs> you talk to trees, do you? Uh, and then he sat down on the log and he said, have a seat. He started to tell me about when he first met Omar. I said, well, are you going to show me Omar? He said, oh, we're sitting on Omar. <laughs> Omar is now a log, but he's still a tree, and he still tells me stories. And and uh, and I said, you know, uh, how did you come to actually speak to Omar? And he said, well, you have to learn to listen. If you walk through these woods, there are many voices. He says, the question is, can you hear them? Or do you fail to listen? He said, you, I just simply listened. And Omar told me these stories. There's very simple stories of things that he, he has noticed. And, 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 you know, this is a matter of listening to a tree. And people would say, well, he's listening to his own imagination. What do you say to that? Well, wait a minute. Yeah. Before you answer, yeah. we have to take a little break for our free Dreamlanders. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to write the break time down for my sound man as we go along. And uh, Free Dreamlander, step up, won't you? It's a long, hot summer at Unknown Country. We are really hurting for subscribers. We need you very badly. Uh, so go to unknowncountry.com and click on the subscribe tab. And while you're at it, you might also pick up a copy of Mysterious Messages from the Beyond, 
which is available on the Dreamland show page, because this is a book that will help you open up your mind and open yourself. There are excellent exercises in here that can help you do that. We'll be right back. You can find out more about Vaughn's work, his upcoming work, his past work, by simply going to Amazon and going to the Vaughn Brashler author page. That's where he keeps us up to date about his activities and doings. You have ears, but you do not hear. Chapter 5. You know, there was a very interesting thing in this chapter for me. It is the story of Carlos Castaneda, because I know people who are very involved in Esalen who were actually there when he was writing some of the books at Esalen, and they very much doubt his bona fides. Tell us why you know that that, uh, the teachings of Don Juan, a Yaqui way of knowledge, has a level of serious legitimacy to it because his exercises and his descriptions work. You know, um, he's been described as a novelist. He's been described as a uh, sorcerer, not a spiritual man. It's, but I think he, he knows the, 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 the way of the spirit. <laughs> so I ask you, what is a spiritual man? So I, I, I do know that when I, I worked at a, a publishing house years ago, um, our publisher at that time, bragged that Carlos, as a uh, anthropology grad student, had submitted his very first book, uh, Yaki Way of Knowledge, um, to to him to publish. And he said, why didn't you publish it? You know, he sold millions of books. And he said, oh, we don't publish uh, uh, dissertations. So, you know, I, I, I think back to that, that he wasn't actually a, a, a California grad student in anthropology. His original book probably had been well-researched and thought out. It, 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 it seemed to be um, factual in, in what he was telling people. And I think that subsequently, perhaps, the books were, um, were based on the first book. You know, in, in, in that sense, they were novel-esque. Yeah, but, but it's, what's important here, folks, is to... Let's not throw out the uh, the uh, castanated baby with the bathwater like I've been doing, uh, because that that first book it means it means that he was out there in the field doing the yep. research that the first book is based based on. I did not know that, and I think it's important to yep. understand yep. things like that because it, it it is it opens our mind to possibilities, and the book is very much worth reading even to this day so yes so if you're going to read any of the castaneda books and i've read them all some more than once read the first one you know because that's where he actually went to mexico apparently and he actually sat on the bench with uh don juan uh matus and um and he was kind of called out as kind of a silly boy from the city that just wanted to learn about uh mushrooms and so forth Right. And and he was taught so much more. He was he was taught that there was a world of the physical and the world of the spiritual, uh which call it the world of tonal and the world of nogwal. And and I I think that there's profound wisdom in the in the teachings of, of Don Juan 
and and while they're told colorfully as a novel and i think i think particularly the first book is meaningful did you know that um the uh the little witches the Don, the donnas that he worked with the nagua women that he worked with they followed him uh back or or they always were in california and they were they were circulating and they were involved in the community and you know and but they all died mysteriously is the point I'm trying to make. They all died mysteriously. That's so really I think strange. That, he doesn't yeah. say why though, does he? He, he? No, no, no. So, so I think that there was, I think there was a lot of uh, fear as to what he was teaching and a lot of resentment, you know? Um, yeah. Don't want to hit, I don't want to hit this too hard, but I think that a lot of people feel threatened by the work of Castaneda. They do. I was one of them. Uh, I, I wouldn't say threatened by it, but I suspected it of fraud. And that was what I found threatening. And I'm going to go back to it because you you taught me that his first book really is what he claims it to be. And that's very important because yeah. uh, this is important work. And uh, now you quote from the Bible a number of times this uh uh, well, I'll just read the quote from Jeremiah, which sums, kind of sums it up. Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have our ears and hear not. And then in Ezekiel, they have ears to hear and hear not, eyes to see and see not. So this seeing and hearing not, what does that mean to us now? And, you know, we're talking from the Bible all those thousands of years ago, but you mentioned at the beginning of this book that this blindness, soul blindness, I call it, started yeah. almost with the beginning of history. So why yes. is it there and what is what is it? Well, I mean, you find it in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, these references to basically... You have eyes yet you see not. You have ears yet you hear not. And it, it appears again and again with slightly variation in wording, but basically saying the same thing. And it, it seems to me that it, 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 we're being told again and again and again, uh, use new eyes and use new ears. Things are not uh, as they seem on the surface. The surface world or the shadow world we look at is simply the reflection of light off objects. And what we hear is within a, a very thin range of what we we hear or what we're conditioned to observe and recognize. There is so much more that we do not hear and so much more that we do not see. Yeah, and it, now you have some interesting exercises in here about uh, about doing that very thing, about that seeing and hearing. Uh, one of them in particular struck me very powerfully. Uh, it's about the it's the receiving messages from beyond exercise. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that is so so basic to this whole process of the. Give us an idea. You don't have to explain the whole exercise of the procedure yeah. you use and what role switching means and all yeah. of that. So I, I always think that when you're working in this new area, these new areas, that it's always good to work with someone else, you know, 
so you can have an agreed upon definition of what you've seen. And you can also work with someone so that you're not like, say, prone to say, oh, this is purely in my imagination. It's just in my head. It doesn't really exist. So I said, so you work with someone and, and, and I think then you work with somebody maybe in another room and they maybe send you a message and they don't tell you or give you clues, uh, in advance what the message would be. And then you come back, you know, there's also exercises in the book, like for remote viewing that are very similar, but you know, if you work with somebody like this, you know, you can play off each other, you know, you can come back and you say, well, what was I thinking? And say, well, I didn't get a clear picture. Often they come as pictures, right? So, I mean, we tend to think in terms of pictures. I think that's the first clue as to how our inner consciousness truly works. Not with words, not with sounds, but pictures. So you say, this is what I was seeing in my mind's eye. And you say, well, it was something like that. So you practice, you do it again, you do it again, you do it again, you get better at it. And then you switch roles and then the other one, uh, becomes the sender and the other one becomes the receiver and do this and you can do this with a group of people you can have a group of people sending a message you know or you can have a group of people as listeners and one person sending to that group the whole message that's very revealing this is a way to actually tune our ability to receive messages from beyond because they're not all from ghostly spirits <laughs> There any spirit, there any spirit of a non-physical nature, meaning that they're not right there in the room, uh, sending you an auditory message. It could be somebody across the the world trying to get your attention. Yeah, and what about groups that meet together? I'm I refer, for example, to Sybil and Ian Fleming who did this, yeah. and try to to reach and influence others. Uh, yeah. it, it, can you pick up on that? Yeah, I, I'm very fond of the, the, the inclusion of the Maharishi effect. The Maharishi Yogi, when he was working in this country and opening up so many eyes, he talked about a type of meditation that, uh, w- well, he called it transcendental meditation, which is copyrighted, by the way. And, and transcendental meditation, Transcendental medication to him went was that his group of people would all transcend time and space by sending messages through time and space anywhere, anytime with impact. So that so in in this sense, he had a group of people working together to send a shared conscious thought form with impact and clarity and directing it toward a specific place and time and with a specific effect. Now, what's interesting about the Maharishi effect and how he asked a group of people to try to bring about peace in the world by, he said, I think it was like 1% of, the, of, of you could do this. Well, he, he, he did, you know, he did have people who followed his example and replicated these experiments, if you will, around the world and with great results. And this is how they measured it. It would have a group of people projecting thought forms collectively, shared thought forms, and projecting them. And what they projected was bringing about peacefulness. And they were very specific, like peacefulness here in this community. And the way they measured it, interestingly enough, was by 
analyzing the the drop in crime rates in that community subsequent to their actions. So this these Maharishi effect um, copies have been uh, well studied and they've been uh, duplicated around the world and they've been shown to be effective. And, you know, folks, one of the mistakes that is being made by a lot of meditation groups right now is that we're trying to, or we're not, I'm not doing it, but trying to change the physical world. In other words, trying to bring rain, trying to stop floods and fires, trying to stop wars. And this is, this is a, something that's very, very difficult to do in a world that has fallen into the trap this one is in. What you need to do is to try to reach the minds of people. You must try to reach their minds and influence them that way. Uh, and not attacking them. I got an email from someone who wants to... Uh, this is There's a whole lot of young people who are just getting into this in their teens and 20s. And... Um, got this email saying, we're going to, our group is going to get together, Mr. Strieber, and we are going to try to put a curse on Joe Manchin because of what he did to our generation yesterday. This was, this is being recorded uh, a little bit before it's going to air, but this is so I'm talking actually about last week at this point. But in any case, uh, and I, I look back, don't do that. You love this man. Give him the energy of love and give him a desire to want you to thrive. This will work. This will change things. You can't change things very well by, by resorting to what amounts to black magic. And anytime you're trying to hurt somebody, it's black magic. So. Yeah. Okay, let's go on. Um... Now, let's. You have some fascinating material in here. There's so much in this. It's a. It's not a thick book, folks. Look at that. Oops. There. There we go. It's not a thick book, but there's so much in it. Vaughn, you have you have really concentrated this. But let's talk about idle consciousness and wayward thoughts because we're sort of on that topic right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think most of us actually do, well, we don't totally understand the, the, the impact of our conscious thought forms, but we, we tend to think of our thoughts as being idle thoughts within our, our minds. In other words, they're just pure imagination. They exist only to ourselves, and they don't have much importance. They're just like musings, let's say. Uh, no, no impact, no direction, no outward motion of these thoughts. They are contained then within ourselves as idle thoughts, and and as a result, uh, people who have strong emotional and mental energy will scattergun their conscious thought forms everywhere. They'll bounce off the walls. It's like spraying bullets into a crowd, caring not where they fall. So we've all walked into a room and felt the effects of this. These are angry people. These are sad people. 
but it falls on people who don't have any relationship or knowledge of what the real message was. They're just, it's emotional, mental energy that's spewed uh, everywhere. In other words, the conscious thoughts, we're not treated properly, we're not honored, we're not focused, we're not directed with impact. We're going to take a little break now, folks, for the Free Dreamlanders, and we will be back with Vaughn Brashler in just a moment. To give an idea of the actual power of this, we can go to a scientific theory known as the Roper Ripple Theory. And when I say this, I mean this, this connection at a subtle level of communication. What is the Roper Ripple Theory? Yes, I think it's more commonly studied by students of communication. Yes. But it, it is measuring um, the, the effects that there, you will have on others as you attempt to communicate. In other words, you create a ripple. Now, not all messages fall upon willing ears. Sometimes the messages will be sent out. They'll have a certain uh, direction and impact in my in, intended, but they will just bounce off because they're 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 not. We do not in, we do not take them in. We do not internalize the message. The Roper Ripple Theory says that there are many uh, ripples of influence. As as messages go out, they create a rippling effect across, like a, a wave effect. The best way to, to combine this with physics is think of wave theory. Now, wave the waves are going out and going out, and then the waves are created by ripples, and these various ripples will be augmented by other ripples. And sometimes there are cross ripples that will change the direction of them. And sometimes they'll be muted by uh, something coming the other from the other direction. But we have to be conscious of the fact that all these ripples are going out and having an effect in joining with other ripples. So we're all influencing each other by our communication which can be nonverbal, but simply conscious thought forms transmitted uh, nonverbally. And we, yeah, and 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 what happens often is, since I've done been doing this, of course, for years, uh, you transmit something to someone that you want to reach, and nothing happens. They don't hear you, and this is a very critical issue because mm-hmm. we have because we're soul blind our senses our subtle senses the second body senses mm-hmm. are dulled and uh you know someone who's interested in driving around in maseratis and going on cruises and all that stuff and is primarily very focused on the material world is not going to hear until they're desperate and what's happening now in the world is people are going to get desperate because the environment is really in trouble and it's going to start affecting lives much more than it has in the past. So we have to be ready, folks. And, and that's why during the third half hour, we will go through and do, I will do a meditation with you that shows you how to be ready. So now, uh, 
this is, I want to get into some of the mysterious events. Talk mm. about, let's talk about the mysterious phone calls in Wheaton. I thought that oh was God. such a oh story. My, my well, word. Well, that's one of the things that changed my life. Um, so I'm, I, I just started in Wheaton at the national headquarters of the Theosophical Society in Wheaton. And I, I had replaced the man who was actually irreplaceable. He kind of co- co-founded the, the Quest Books at that time, the Theosophical Publishing House. And uh, Mr. Pettison had been there for decades. But he was elderly and he had been looking for a retirement. Uh, someone to replace him in retirement. So I finally said, yes, I, I will do it for a, a little bit of time. It would be interesting. So I came there to live and to work. And um, on the th- on the TPH Publishing House building, I had my office down the hall from where I lived. And it faced south and it was hot. And I had all these plants going around and around and around in the hot sun. And one day... And a summer afternoon, the phone rang, and it was a man who sounded very elderly and had a very thick Indian accent as though he were from calling from India. And yet, on this landline, it was completely clear as though he was sitting in front of me. And he kept saying over and over with, with little time for me to uh, interact with him, Sir, I have called you to invite you on a lightning tour of India. I make these these tours of India in the late August or early September every year. And um, I want you to come with me on our tour. It would change your life forever. And I, I started to say, well, I've just started this job. I'm very flattered you would think of me, but I cannot go. And he keeps saying over and over how wonderful these tours are. And then I say, well, you must have been calling for Mr. Pedersen. I, I said, I, who are you, sir? He does not answer this question. He keeps talking about how wonderful the tours are. So finally, the the, the line goes dead. And then a few days later, I get the same phone call. And he says the same thing. And I make the same comments. Who are you? You must be trying to reach Mr. Pedersen. He no longer is in this office. Why did you call me? And he says, I have called you particularly, sir, because I think this would have great impact on your life if you would come with me on a lightning tour of India. Again, the line goes dead. So at that time, I go across the street to the main building, and I talk to different people that I think have played a prank on me. And I say, well, you know, I got these calls from India, and I'm looking for them to smile or look away or some kind of telltale sign. I get nothing like this. In fact, I get these odd looks like, you're crazy. You know, I'm I'm the new guy, and I'm obviously insane. Yeah. So I t- so I talked to the lady who is the switchboard operator there, Donna, and she she said uh, I I tell her when I got the call, and the man has a thick accent, and and can you tell me anything about you know switching the call over to me where it seemed to come from, or did he tell you it? And she said, Vaughn, I, I received no such calls. This man called your extension directly. He must have known your your extension number. And I said, but Don, he called it twice. And he said, well, then he wanted to speak to you twice, didn't he? He said, I can't tell you anything more. And I walked, he, she walks away. So he calls again and the same thing. And he says, well, sir, I must tell you one thing. If you are 
unwilling to come with me on my lightning tour of India, I will tell you one more thing that will change your life forever. He said, learn to meditate in the early morning light beside running water. And I said, well, I, I, we have this pond in the back, you know, and I could spread out a blanket. And he says, no, you must do this or you must spread out a blanket. You must, you must meditate in the early morning light beside running water. He says, because you will learn to move in the light, live in the light, and be in the light. I said, live in the light, move in the light, and be in the light. He said, you will be one with the light. So I try this, you know, you know, he hangs up and I try this and I spread out. I remember I had one of those uh, bicentennial yellow blankets and I spread it out in the back of our grounds there, a beautifully maintained lawn by our fountain. And the pond had a fountain. I sat there and I would get up in the morning and I'd, and it was profound. It was profound. I felt absolutely transformed formed like it was moving somewhere you know light all around me it was wonderful and i got to thinking like well what the heck who is this guy and i thought well he must be famous if he makes these lightning tours of india and he knows all this so i go into our bookstore and i i i talk to the bookstore manager she that occupies the first floor of the theosophical publishing house and, and the Quest bookstore manager says, well, uh, it was, uh, what are you looking for? And I said, well, I'm looking for books on meditation, meditating in the light. And she says, well, I, all the meditation books are over there. And I said, well, I'm looking for the good stuff. I'm looking for the, well, she said, what are the good, what's the good stuff? I said, the real stuff written by people in India that know what they're talking about. She said, Oh, she said that those are in the in the corner over there. I said, okay. And so I walked down there. And as I walked down this corner, there's a book face out you know, on one of those easels, and it's a book about um, meditating in the in the light. I said, huh. I said, this is what he was talking about. So I flipped the book over and I started to read about this man who led these lightning tours of India in the fall. Wow. And, and that, Yeah, and at the end, it says when he was born, and it lists the year he died, which was two years before I got any of these phone calls. My word, Mon, that's so, such a story. So I adapted that, and later on, I, 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 I knew a woman who was dying of cancer. And we started using these exercises to actually move beyond the physical plane into the subtle energy planes. And we would uh, we would notice a different coloration of each plane we would go through, and we would do this together. We would do these meditations together. And she had no real training in meditation, and I was adapting this man's training and moving in the light. And I had moved her bed close to a window so the light shone upon her. And I had taken a little teeny um, uh, fountain, you know, that you can sit on a desk with running water. We did this. And it seemed to work. And, and, and she got to where she was very comfortable at this. Now, this woman had not spoken for weeks. She was getting progressively worse and worse to where she could just howl like a dog. She had brain tumor. Oh. And, and I said, Deb, can you 
you're doing very well. I said, can you do this on your own? And she said the first words to me she had spoken in weeks. She said, yes. And she squeezed my hand and smiled. And I went to the head nurse, who was also the head nun, named Sister Luke. And I said, Sister Luke, Deb is ready. She's ready. She said, good. That's why she's here, to get ready. And the next day, Deb died. And people said, well, Deb is gone. I said, no, Deb, Deb is free. Fred, Deb walked out of here on her own. She Don't worry about Deb. She'll do just fine. Ironically, though, Sister Luke herself later died at a young age in a hospice of brain cancer. And ironically, the young woman in the bookstore in Wheaton died at a young age in hospice care at home of brain cancer. Synchronicity. Yeah. A grim synchronicity in this case. Yeah. Well, so the thing that's so fascinating is, oh, tell us the title of the book. That I, uh, oh, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the sage. The, yeah. The meditation book that you found about the, the you know, it, I can't, I can't even remember it. It's so long ago, you know, so long ago. So well, if you ago. do remember it, folks, we'll put yeah. it in the dreamland show yeah. page yeah. and see if you can remember it. Uh, the, you have, uh, talking about being a better receiver. I think it'd be a good time for us to talk about that, but for the free dreamlanders, not until after this break. And we're going to ask you to do some things. Uh, we're going to ask you and, and I mentioned, I want to mention this to the subscribers too. dream uh, communion is available in paperback in, on Amazon in uh, as a Kindle and as an audiobook. The first time it has ever been read from beginning to end, and you can get it on Amazon. Von Brashler is available on Amazon too, in that you can keep up with him and his work on his Amazon author page, his new book, Mysterious Messages from the beyond, which I think you will agree by now is really a, a wonderful journey. We will be right back. Well, before the break, uh, for Free Dreamlanders, the subscribers did not have to endure a break. We were talking, getting ready to talk about becoming a better receiver. And this is very important because one of the things that will happen so many times, people say to me, Whitley, uh, you know, my wife died and I can't, it's not like what happened with Annie. I'm not getting a thing. And I would always say, are you sure? And Vaughn, why don't you expand on that? Because you've got some powerful stuff in here about being a better receiver of these subtle messages from the beyond and from those we love very often. Most of us like to talk better than we like to listen. And I always think of people that want to speak and contact their dead loved ones. And I always say, you know, spiritually speaking, do you really want to drag them back? I mean, they've kind of moved on, don't you think? And keep bragging, dragging them back. But on the other hand, if they want to say something to you, be willing to listen. I always say, just be willing to listen. You know, have your ears on, your, your inner ears. 
So I, I think that I think that typically when people have lost someone dear to them, uh, they'll be con- they'll be contacted one way or the other, perhaps by their dearly uh, departed, probably within three days. It seems to be quite common. And they'll appear to them in a dream, which will be a lucid dream, very profound, very real. And they'll say something very meaningful. It won't be just a memory that you're resurfacing in your sleep, but a, a lucid dream. They'll appear to you in a daydream, or they'll, they'll seem to be speaking to you, and you'll hear them in your head. You know, And I think it's very important to listen, You know, because they might have something to say. They need closure, and God knows we need closure. So they'll they'll come by and they'll say they'll say something, you know, it might be something personal, it might be just touching you, and then they'll move on and and be ready for that. Be be ready to listen, you know, listen, listen, listen. As my teacher always told me, three things you must know, Vaughn: listen, listen, listen. <laughs> he even wrote a book so I wouldn't forget it. Listen, listen, listen. Uh, it's really true, you know. You you need to listen. One of the things that happens to people is they listen and they hear, but then they're not sure if they're hearing themselves or the yeah. loved one. How do yeah. you tell? Yeah, I always say, you know, with it, if it's within your frame of reference, it's going to be stored in this little pocket calculator we call our, our mental, our brain, our physical brain. And, and that's where most of our dreams will come from. They'll just be a rehash of what you've encountered and thought about and and what you're playing with inside your head. It's a rerun of sorts. And maybe you're running the tape back backwards or sideways or whatever. So, but you know, um, there's, there's a different, different way of, of, of knowing. And that is whether it rings is something totally new that you've never heard or, or stored in your memory before you have no memory data it is fresh information. It is, it is not ring is, is something that you have stored and are resurfacing. That's a memory, you know, anyway, and, and then we, we tend to, you know, confuse the two. But if, it, if it's totally new, it's totally new information, uh, then it's probably, you know, a very legitimate new communication that you're receiving and not simply a playback tape from your memory. Yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. I've had tremendous trouble trying to, uh, and had a diary on the website, on our website before she died. And she came back a number of times to write more. And it was real hard for me because I was I didn't trust myself. But now I do trust myself quite, you know, if she comes back again, she hasn't been, she hasn't come often. Because like you said, she's moved on. She's got mm-hmm. other things to do. Although, as a teacher, and she, this is a long story that my listeners all know, she does enter lives all the time. And we all know how we know that because we, she had a, an, she created an avatar before she died. And when you see this white moth in your life in a strange situation, you know it's Anne, and you just have to sit and open your mind, and you will get into contact with her. Uh, now, I would like to talk now another about another phone call situation, because I'm, I suspect, I've never had this happen, uh, 
But I suspect that some of my listeners probably are nodding their heads and saying, yes, this, this, I've had strange phone calls too. This is the one about the brother's calls to his family after death. Wow, frantic calls, you say in the book. Yeah, this is hard to write because the family wanted to tell me the story and they told it to me quite um, in detail. And it seemed to be important for them to tell me. And then when I said I was going to uh, put it in the book, they wanted they didn't want any part of it. So I changed all their names. So I will say I can understand is, their concern. Yeah. So I mean, you know, you for a lot of reasons, you know, most people would, you know, any anyway. So this is a family on the on the West Coast, I'll say, and uh, they were well known to me. And the, 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 the brother and the sister had never really gotten along. They fought as children. They called each other names and they would fight. And it didn't get any better as they got older. When the brother died, he died out of state in the Midwest. And he died. And uh, as soon as he had died, his sister on the West Coast started getting phone calls now. These were not interactive phone calls. These were calls that were left on her uh, messaging at home, her home phone. And she had these these recordings. And she would be at work and she'd come back and she'd play. And it sounded like a crazed, you know, dead brother. And he's screaming at her and calling her names and names that she had not heard since they were children. And it's clearly, it's to her mind, her, her brother, but he's just died. So she plays the tape for her husband, who happens to be a newspaper journalist. He says, that's your brother. <laughs> you know, and, and, and they don't believe in any of the spiritual stuff, but she says, that's your brother. And uh, she plays it for her two adult daughters. And they say, oh, yeah, that's our uncle. Absolutely. Uh, how could that be? She said, oh, I don't know. Well, she got another call, and he's screaming again. And then the body of the brother in the Midwest is shipped to a, a crematorium, and he's cremated. And then she gets a third call. She comes home, she plays it, and the voice on the phone sounds again like her brother. And he's yelling, I'm burning, I'm burning you, you know, B-I-T, unmentionable words how could you do this i'm burning i'm burning it's hot and then nothing well so her husband hears this and he says oh my gosh and they they learned that he's been cremated and he said oh my gosh <laughs> so <clears throat> a running a, a running a, 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 a narration right so so he being a journalist he goes to his computer and he writes it all down in a Word document, word for word. And then he notes what was said and when they got the messages and what every, everyone who would heard it and their comments, like a journalist would. And for several days, it would be there when they go to listen to messages. And then one day, the messages, all three messages were gone. And they ask, who, who erased the messages? Well, nobody would claim that they had re erased the messages. They were all confused. So the husband, the journalist, he contacts the phone 
service, the phone company, and he wants a record of these calls that came on these dates. Because remember, he's written down right. locations. Yeah. So, so he knows when the calls came in. And they said they have no record of any call coming in from that uh, at that time on those times. No record whatsoever. Now, um, this seems to me like a lot of um, these so-called spirit phone calls where there is actually no phone number. They're somehow just getting to you and, and, and it really doesn't matter if your phone is connected or not. It's going to ring and they're going to speak to you. And uh, I remember there was one that, that came through and it was like zero, 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 you know, and another one came through with five, 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 five. But moreover, you know, you'll pick up the phone and it won't even identify where it's coming from. And it doesn't really matter because they're not really using a phone, are they? You know, they're, no, are, they're, or, they're, it's something else is happening. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, the, we, we're get, getting toward the end of our time together. We've got some time. Uh, let's talk about assisting spirits to move on. I have a personal interest in this because I've had a lot of spirits show up. And, and incontrovertibly, I'm not going to go into all the stories. I've probably already told them on this show that where a spirit shows up and needs to move on. I thought you had some very wise material in your book about this. Helping spirits move on. Yeah, I, I think, well, I actually had some training in working with a woman who de-ghosted houses. <laughs> and um, then, of course, there's my spiritual training. And I think the two of them are, you know, completely in line in, 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 in recognizing the, the importance of spirits moving on. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and helping them, not hindering them by keeping them around and asking them questions like, how does it feel? What's it like? Living vicariously off of this, you know, almost entertaining quality of, of looking into the great beyond, which is cruel, you know. I mean, they need to transcend. They need to transform and move on. So I think that, I think it's important to help them to move on, uh, to encourage them if you can uh, to move on. Now, it's not important that you cannot see them. You know, the whole thing about mysterious messages in, in, in sending or receiving conscious thought forms is that you can get in touch with someone by projecting your conscious thought forms. You align yourself with them. You th you, what you do is you visualize them inside your mind's eye. You visualize them. You see them, and then you pre you project the thought to that image. And it's like a map. It's like an unerring map. It's like, I call it karmic attraction, magnetic attraction. What it really is is electromagnetic attraction. That's what consciousness is. So you're actually reaching out and, and, and touching them. So what my, my teacher always said was, sit with them. Encourage them to move on. Tell them, you may be confused. You may be reluctant. You may be afraid. You may want to stay here, you know, but, you know, you need to move on. So I always like to think that our higher form, our spiritual life essence moves on 
But what's left behind is kind of our, our lower self. It's like our emotional body or memories. It is our emotional baggage. It is our lower mental mind frame. This is what's left behind. And it, and it, it it's like locked, you know, it, imprisoned here. In a sense, it's like time locked. And it's important, I think, to encourage these people to move on uh, by, by encouraging them. Uh, my, my teacher would certainly want, want it said that way, and I think she was absolutely right. Von Brashler, Mysterious Messages from the Beyond. You can find out more about Von's work and what he's up to by going to his author page on Amazon. It's a wonderful interview, Vaughn. Very empowering. And subscribers, in the final half hour, we're going to work together, you and me. Uh, we're going to do the sensing exercise. And then we're going to do a little bit of work with our light bodies that you probably haven't done before. Or maybe some of you have. And we're going to be doing that more often on the show and also in the subscriber area because it's very important right now. We've got to do these things to, for our own sake and for the sake of our world. And Vaughn, I would like to thank you very much for having been with us on Dreamland. It's a real pleasure and a joy to have you every time you come. And subscribers, do look back. And there's some other wonderful Vaughn Brashler shows on Dreamland. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Subscribers, what we're going to do now is we're going to do a little meditation together, a little work. Uh, it's going to start with the sensing exercise, which I will go through. Some of you know the sensing exercise. Some of you do it every day, like I do. I first learned it in 1969 when Anne and I joined the Gurdjieff Foundation. G.I. Gurdjieff was a, for us, from Armenia, he was a philosopher and mystic who founded what is now known as the Gurdjieff work. And you can find out more about it on the Foundation's page online, G-U-R-D-J-I-E-F-F. -F. Just Google that word and uh, you'll find the Foundation. And if you live in an area where the Foundation has uh, a groups and they are all over the world, you might want to explore that more deeply because it's a very valuable thing. I'm still in it after all these years. And in any case, the sensing exercise, at first when we started doing it, we just did it for the Gurdjieff work reasons. But then later the visitors came along and they were really interested in it because it, 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 it makes you more visible. When you place your attention on sensation, you become more visible in their level of realities, according to what I can tell from what I believe they've explained to me. They're very intent about this exercise. They make, they make sure I do it every single day, at least three times, which I do it at one in the afternoon, at 11 at night, and at three in the morning. And if I don't wake up for the three in the morning one, they will wake me up. I, I must do that one. That was the most important one to them. Of course, it's the hardest, as you may imagine. Uh, getting up at that hour every night for you know, all this time. I've now been doing it ever since Annie passed away. 
is is a challenge, but I do it every night anyway. And sometime between three and five, I have to admit, I don't set an alarm on purpose because this is organic and should be organic. I'm not trying to become a machine, another kind of machine. Let me put it that way. So, okay, we'll start and do the sensing exercise together. And then we'll do some work. You might sit and close your eyes and just listen if you wish. You can watch, you can open your eyes too. Try to not let your head do a lot of evaluating while we're doing this because the mind is constantly saying, no, I believe that, no, I don't believe this, no, this, no, that doesn't come, blah, blah, blah. That's all stuff from what is actually a dead world. This is from the living world. So try to keep that, don't push it away, don't make it silent, but just let it go on on its own, okay? All right. We take a breath and we release it. And we move our attention to the physical sensation, to our physical bodies. Not looking down at our physical bodies, but actually sensing them. Actually paying attention to the way the body feels right now. And the the body loves this. It loves this attention. And it will be right with you if you get more attention than you give your body the healthier you'll be, among other things. Now we're going to go through the body and we're going to amplify the attention in each part of our body by concentrating. Let's start with the right foot. We're going to go down to our right foot with our attention. And we're going to pay attention to our right foot. Pay careful attention to it. Notice the toes, the heel, the ball of the foot, top of the foot, paying attention now to the whole right foot. Now we move up to the ankle and calf and shin, the whole lower leg. Now we move up again to the knee, top of the leg, the thigh and hip. The whole upper leg, we're being very careful now. Now we apply our attention to the sensation of our whole right leg. Now we leave it and we move to the left and we concentrate in the same way. First on the left foot. Now the lower leg, being sure to notice the way the different parts of the leg and the foot feel. What sensation am I getting from them? The knee and the upper leg, the thigh, up to the hip. And now the whole left leg. Now we concentrate on bringing the right leg back in. So we're concentrating our attention on the sensation of both of our legs. Now we leave them and we go to our arms, first to the right arm, to the right hand. We concentrate our attention on just the sensation of the right hand, the way it feels right now, the sensation I'm getting from it. Now I move up to my wrist, forearm, 
elbow and upper arm, and my whole right arm. Now I leave it and I go to the left, to the left hand, to the left forearm and wrist, to the left elbow and upper arm, and the whole left arm. Now I bring in the right as well. So I'm concentrating my attention, noticing the sensation of my arms. Now I include my legs. Now I leave my arms and legs and I go down to the base of my spine and my buttocks. And I move up my spine, up my back. up to the lower back, middle back, upper back, shoulders, now the whole back from the shoulders to the buttocks. Now I move up again, leave my back behind to my neck, back of my head, the crown of my head, now my face and ears, some sensation, not much sensation in the ears, the nose, but lots in the lips and around the eye and the forehead. Now I move down to my chest, abdomen, privates, and now my whole body. I'm concentrating my attention on the sensation of my whole body. Now what we're going to do is we're going to move to our spines. We're going to use our imagination. It's a very important tool in these exercises. This is not the just imagination, imagination. This is the real thing that is meant to enable us to work in these levels and is a very profound part of being human. I take my imagination to my spine and I imagine that my spine is dark. Now we're going to light it up with the seven tonitter from the Pyramid of Unas, now known as the seven chakras, going down to the very base of the spine. It's the dark red of that level. It's the sun just ready to come up over the horizon. Now the yellow, the orange-yellow of dawn. The sun is rising over the horizon and we've moved up the spine now to the second chakra. Now the yellow of the full sun. We're rising, that's the third chakra, to the fourth. Now we're beginning to ascend at the same time 
As we ascend the spine, we ascend into the universe around us. We're rising. We look down onto the green fields of earth. We feel such a loving kinship with this planet of ours, our home, our dear mother home. Now we cast our eyes up again to the blue of space, the blue of the high sky. This is the same blue that I saw Annie ascend into, the most beautiful color that I know. And we look up at this blue, but we're still rising and rising faster and faster. Now we come up to the to the <coughs> bright edge of the planet's atmosphere and also the next chakra. It's a deep purple color, indigo, and that is the sky at the edge of space also. And we join our energy to this energy. Now we're rising very fast. We come up to the seventh chakra, deep, deep indigo violet of, of space, the violet of that energy, and it's filled with stars, and it turns from violet to white, blazing white light, pouring down on us, into our spines, lighting our spines up so brightly that we can hardly even see the brightness of these columns of light that have lit up within us. And now the light fills our whole bodies and it shoots down into the earth, deep into the heart of the heart of the earth. And we are part of it now. And now we spread it. It goes out to everyone who's doing the exercise. And it goes out to them beyond time. So if you're doing this in 10 years, it's still there, immediate. There is no time where we are now. And we take with it our joy of being and each one of us and all of us gives our joy of being to the world to everyone without any conditions whatsoever. We give what we have of the best of everything to everyone. This is what it is to experience unconditional love from the other side, to give it. We give it together And that energy will go in many different directions, many places. We don't have to think about where it'll go. We don't need to. It will go where it's wanted and needed without us having to worry about it at all. So that light, we shine forth. We shine 
Thank you for doing this with me. Stay with it if you wish. Use it. Come back to it, to the energy of the induction. Anytime you want to. It's here for you. I'll see you next week on Dreamland. And we'll do more of these in the subscriber area. I'll do them as often as I can. I'm working on a new book now. And it's hard to do, to, to juggle two, two or three things all at once. But I've done it many times. I've written many books while I've been writing, doing Dreamland. So I'm certainly capable of it. See you next week. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.